Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. There's a famous song. It goes like this. This is a man's world. This is a man's world. But it wouldn't be nothing. Nothing without a woman all the day. Betty Jean Newsom is credited for co-writing that song with James Brown. She claimed the lyrics were actually hers alone, and she wasn't properly paid for them. Author Jessica Bennett and a group of fellow female professionals were facing man's world issues like male colleagues taking credit for their ideas and work. So they started a monthly meeting to share stories and look for solutions. Among other things, their gatherings explored workplace discrimination, and social research on how to combat it. Bennett has written a book about their experiences and findings, the title, Feminist Fight Club, an office survival manual for a sexist workplace. Jessica Bennett spoke with KUOW's Jeannie Yandel at Town Hall Seattle on December 27th. Thank you to Sonia Harris for our recording. Please note, this talk contains unedited language of an adult nature. Good evening. Uh, I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Town Hall's program director. On behalf of Town Hall, thank you for coming out tonight, along with our partner seller, University Bookstore. It's my pleasure to welcome you to tonight's event with Jessica Bennett and Jeannie Yandel. This event is part of our civic series, which is brought to you by support from Boeing, the True Brown Foundation, the Real Networks Foundation, and KUOW-FM. Award-winning journalist Jessica Bennett is a contributing writer to the New York Times, where she covers gender issues, culture, and language. She also maintains a monthly column on digital language called Command Z, and she's a contributing editor to leanin.org. She's a local girl, too. I know a lot of you know that. She's a a Garfield High School graduate. She's joining us tonight to discuss her first book, Feminist Fight Club, an office survival manual for a sexist workplace, which became an instant Amazon bestseller. And she's joined in conversation tonight with Jeannie Yandel. Jeannie is a KOW producer. She's been working at KOW since 2001. Since then, she spent time producing or hosting almost every KOW show, uh, from Morning Edition to The Conversation. She's currently the producer of the record. Let's give him a round of applause. Hi. Ladies and gentlemen, Jessica Bennett. So you have something from the beginning of your book that you wanted to read. Yes, I would love to. So... We'll get to this in a moment, but the Feminist Fight Club is a real club. And it's a group of women that I've been meeting with since I began my career about a decade ago in New York. And so this is going to sort of set the stage for how that came about. I'd begun my career at one of the oldest of the old boys club, Newsweek, where the sexism had once been so rife that the female staffers, led by a young civil rights lawyer, now congresswoman, named Eleanor Holmes Norton, sued the company for gender discrimination in what was the first lawsuit of its kind. It was 1970, and the Newsweek women were brimming with privilege and smarts, Fulbright scholars, valedictorians, graduates of seven sister colleges from well-off families. 
As Norton would later describe it, these were women who you would think wouldn't have anything to fear at work. And yet they were told bluntly that women don't write at Newsweek. They were called dollies by their male bosses. Their job duties included pushing mail carts, delivering coffee, as well as real research and reporting, all three requiring handing something over to a man. It was a very hopeless time, said Susan Brown Miller, a feminist scholar who, along with the late director and screenwriter Nora Afron, was a Newsweek researcher, i.e. a male girl, for a brief period in the 1960s. Both decamped before the lawsuit, but the words of one of the researchers who remained always stuck in my mind. She said, quote, after a while, you really did start to lose your confidence. You started to think, writing is what the men do. I never knew that story, in part because the legacy had not been passed down. And yet four decades later, during my era, the experience felt familiar. Writing was what the men did. I was a writer, of course. I had the title to prove it, as did many of my female colleagues. But our work was still published with a fraction of the frequency of the male staffers at that time. We'd not been promoted as quickly as the male colleagues we'd arrived with. And it was hard not to notice that the leaders of the struggling Newsweekly were almost entirely white and male. Later, we would add up the bylines for that calendar year. Men would write all but six of the magazine's 49 cover stories. And yet still, Newsweek was a cushy job for a young journalist. It was my first real job out of college, and I felt lucky to have landed it. But it was also the first time that I began to doubt my skill. I wasn't very good at talking myself up, and I stumbled when asked to pitch my ideas to a room, typically a room full of white men. I didn't know how to react when a basketball hoop was erected in the newsroom, or when the new boss began spending all of his time hanging out by my desk. I didn't have a mentor I could talk to. In fact, there were few senior women to speak of. It wasn't blatant sexism, exactly. There could never be a, a formal policy that banned women from writing. And to the contrary, the door was open to women, and we were rolling through it in greater numbers than ever. But those long ingrained attitudes don't just evaporate in a generation. The New York Times columnist Gail Collins once told me what, what, that while the sexism of her era was certainly crushing, it also had a kind of strange benefit. It was easy to identify. When a guy pinched your ass or told you that women don't write at Newsweek, it certainly wasn't fair, but at least you knew it wasn't fair. It was clear-cut discrimination, sexism with a legal definition and a thumbprint, not simply a feeling. Was it real? Am I crazy? Was I the only one who saw it? Recognizing sexism today is harder than it once was. Like the microaggressions that people of color endure daily, today's sexism is insidious, casual, politically correct, even friendly. It's a kind of can't put your finger on it, not particularly overt, hard to quantify, harder to even call out behavior that maybe isn't necessarily intentional or even conscious. Sometimes women exhibit it too. And yet none of that makes it any less damaging. On a day-to-day -day level, it's watching a man instinctively turn to a woman to take notes in a meeting, or being mistaken for the admin when you're actually the one in charge. It's being talked over in a group setting, over and over again, or having your idea attributed to somebody else, 
more often than not, a man. It's following all the rules, leaning all the way in, and still having to worry about being perceived as too aggressive when you display the behavior required of a person in charge. It's knowing that a colleague calling another woman ambitious is the opposite of a compliment. It's having to be nice, because women are nice, but not too nice, because you don't want to be a pushover. Needing to be maternal, a natural caretaker, but not actually a mother, or lest you be viewed as uncommitted to the job. It's having to be confident so that you can command respect, but not too confident, because we don't like cocky women. It's having to work twice as hard to prove you're once as good, and three, four, five times as hard if you are a woman and of color. It's the fact that women are still more likely than men to feel like imposters, or that when men rise up through the ranks, we like them more, but when women rise, we like them less. Some call this form of sexism death by a thousand cuts. Taken individually, the affronts don't seem like that big a deal. But over time, and collectively, they are fatal. In an ideal scenario, we'd have policies in place to ensure that our workplaces were equal, and hopefully we'll get there. But if, even if some scholars believe that it's the female leadership style that will fuel the revolution, and they do, even if we are working on a political level towards systemic change, though, of course, this was written before our recent election, even if every pop star in the world proclaims herself a feminist, thank you, Beyonce, most of us still have to roll out of bed each morning feeling relatively powerless and face the mundane, boring, subtle bullshit that confronts us on a daily basis. Diversity trainings don't solve for being the default coffee girl. Our legal system isn't equipped to solve for the fact that strong women will be perceived as pushy or the fact that Americans still, by and large, prefer male bosses. And so, we need weapons of our own, an arsenal of them. We need to be armed with data to prove that the problem exists and tactics to chip away at it from the outside and the inside. We need skills, hacks, tricks, tools, battle tactics to fight for ourselves while also advocating for change within the system. And yet, this is not a solo task. We need other women and men by our side. So let's start by linking arms. Does that sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> One of the things that I loved about this book was the consistent call to work together, to identify stuff when it happens, to figure out how to call it out, to try and change it. So throughout the night, I'm going to ask whether any of you guys have experienced some of the things that Jessica describes. We will consider this a kind of feminist fight club. We're going to look at each other and validate each other's experiences. So, first of all, anything that Jessica said. Does that sound familiar to anybody here? Ever experienced anything like that? Yes? Yes? You and I talked on the phone, and you talked about what it was like to work at Newsweek. And you had this moment. I don't know if every woman has a similar moment when they realize, oh, this isn't just me. 
it might be a series of things that we eventually add up. But you had like this cinematic moment where a thing happened. What was it? Yeah, so as I describe a bit in, in the reading, you know, I had grown up here, progressive Seattle. My parents are in the front row. You know, they always taught me I could achieve and accomplish anything. I grew up in the 80s era of girl power. And so it really wasn't until my first real staff job out of college at Newsweek that I started butting up against this thing. And it was like, what is this thing? Is this thing systemic sexism? Or is this thing just like, I'm not that good at my job? Maybe I'm not the greatest writer. Maybe the reason why the stories I pitch get rejected and then assigned to a dude is because I didn't pitch them the right way. So, okay, that, that is one way of thinking. And, and for me, there came a time when a lot of the young women in my office were kind of grumbling about these same issues. And yet, even talking with one another, we didn't quite identify this as a collective systemic experience until we found out about this lawsuit, the Newsweek women. And this may sound familiar because it was now the subject of an Amazon series called The Good Girls Revolt that tells the story of these women who sued the company for gender discrimination in 1970. And what happened was a male researcher in the library who'd been there for decades at Newsweek sort of heard that we were grumbling about this. And he laid this copy of a book written by Susan Brown Miller, a feminist writer, on my desk with a little post-it note to a page. And I came back to my desk with my, my two female friends and colleagues after lunch one day, and, and we saw this book, and we flipped to it, and it was marked to the page that described the story of the women who'd sued the company. And she had been a staffer at the time, this author. And we couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe that this place where we worked, this place where we were experiencing so much of what was similar to what these women described and what was described in the book was still happening, and yet we didn't know about it. And it turned out nobody knew about it. We went, we literally went like racing down the hallways asking female editors and male editors and anyone who would listen, like, did you know that there was this lawsuit at Newsweek? And of course, this was pre, we couldn't Google it. <laughs> It wasn't on the internet. At Nobody that time. knew anything before Google. So, so we were like, I mean, I don't know. I guess we have to go to the library. So we we did go to the library, um, <laughs> got the microfiche, you know, all of that. Um, but nobody knew that this lawsuit had existed. And what we ended up doing was we tracked down the original women from this suit, in part because we were just so captivated and wanted to hear their stories, and ended up writing a piece looking at what had changed and, and what hadn't. And it was only through learning of their story 40 years prior that I think we began to realize that this was a collective experience. This was something that had been going on for decades and that it wasn't just us. It wasn't just a feeling. And, and it was that story that ultimately led us to form the Fight Club. And the Feminist Fight Club still meets today. This is not a thing that happened a couple of times. It still meets today. Yes, it's alive and well. Um, <laughs> we, we meet monthly. Um, we continue to meet in one of our mother's houses in New York because the idea was that like eventually we would rise up in our careers and we would have an apartment big enough to host a dozen people. Um, but turns out <laughs> journalism is not, it's not like killing it right now. So, um, 
so, so we still meet in one of our members' um, parents' homes. She is lovely and, and hostess, and we sit around the couches, and, um, and, we, and we still talk about issues. We just met recently after the election, and, and it's ongoing. Well, I want to get into some of the, uh, the definitions of behaviors that you talk about and the names that you give them. So one of my favorites, the manterrupter. What is a manterrupter? Yes, so you saw this in the video. Um, a manterrupter is a man who interrupts a woman when she's speaking. And no, not every man is an interrupter and not every interrupter is a man. But what the research shows is that women are, in fact, twice as likely to be interrupted when they speak as men are. And if you ever needed an example of this, beyond like Kanye West yanking the mic from Taylor Swift at the VMAs, look no further than the presidential debates with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Um, you know, he interrupted her 43 times on stage, and she interrupted him something like once. So the idea is to create a word that's sort of funny and rolls off the tongue, but that identifies a more complex behavior that, that is real. So... How many people here have experienced manterruption? That's a lot of hands. I will also say in the Disney movie Moana, the first overt example of manterruption I have ever seen. It was amazing. Even Disney is catching up. It well, was very exciting. And di like the, the female Disney characters speak like one-eighth of the time that male Disney characters do. Like there have been studies on this as well. Yeah, for the most part, Disney is a huge bummer. But this latest one, a little bit better. Good. Yeah. Okay, so we now know that basically everybody in the audience has experienced manterruption. How do you stop it? I know we saw an example in the, in the video, but aside from speaking over and over and right. over, what are your strategies? Obviously, the video is meant to be exaggerated, but um, <laughs> highlights real points, I think. So, you know, there are some really simple things you can do. You can have an ally who is going to stand up and say, hey, can you let Jess finish when I'm trying to speak? Like someone else chiming in. I call that woman interruption. Woman interrupting. <laughs> The man interrupter. I've gotten, I spent a lot of time doing like internet searches for puns, like bad puns, when I was researching this book. So you can woman interrupt the man interrupter. Um, you know, if you're a person in charge, this stuff often happens in workplace contexts where there's, where there's meetings. So if you're the person leading a meeting and you notice that somebody is constantly being interrupted and you have the power to, like, just call on someone. You can employ literally, like, the elementary school talking stick rule. Like, you do not interrupt when people are speaking. And this varies by industry, of course, but in a field like mine where... It's so much about ideas and pitching ideas. If you're getting interrupted in the middle of the idea you're trying to pitch, like that's a job that you're not getting. I love the talking stick idea. <laughs> I would like to have it happen at and my work. And in fact, I interviewed a woman who um, runs a team of like 800 people at Google who employs that talking stick rule in her meetings. That's so smart. We can learn everything from elementary school management. Okay, so we have another one. Bro appropriation. I have feelings about bro appropriation. What is bro appropriation? So bro appropriation is a bro who is appropriating your idea. And again, you know, literally every single one of these things caveated with no, not every bro is appropriating your idea. But what the research again shows is that women's ideas are less likely to be correctly attributed to them. And even in mixed gender settings, if you're in a workplace context and a good idea emerges from the group, 
both women and men will instinctively assume that that idea came from men. So there is truth to this idea that women don't get credit when they come up with things. And of course, like, there is all sorts of history to prove this, like Monopoly, a game invented by a woman but given credit to a man, um, that, like DNA, like all sorts of scientific uh, examples of this all throughout history. Wow, scientific appropriation. Okay, so who has experienced appropriation? Your idea, a man takes credit for it or gets credit for it, yes? That's also a lot of hands. Wow, okay. So... And, like, men can be appropriated, too, for what it's worth. Like, yes. it's sort of just taking credit for someone else's idea or someone giving credit to the person who it didn't originate with. So what's a good strategy for dealing with appropriation? So, well, it was interesting. There was an article in the Washington Post a couple of months ago about the women of the Obama White House. And they felt that in meetings, their ideas were not being attributed to them correctly and they were not being heard. And this is fascinating to me because, you know, Obama calls himself a feminist. Like, these are the most powerful women in the most powerful office in our country under a feminist president, and even they're experiencing some of these issues. So they created this concept of amplification, they called it. And the idea was they would bring each other into meetings, and they would repeat what one another said, and they would make sure that their voices were heard, and they would always attribute the ideas back to who they came from. And it was just sort of like having a wing woman or a wingman to back you up and make sure that your ideas were being heard. So I think that's actually a really simple and effective strategy, and like, you know, if people all the way in the White House are using it, and I'm sure that they'll be needing to use it more here soon. (laughs) I mean, if there are even any women. Anyway, um... A wing woman <laughs> is one strategy. <laughs> Most of us have heard the term mansplain, yes? We're familiar with this term? We have the expert here. Can you please tell us what mansplaining is? Yes, so mansplaining, not a word that I came up with. Um, a term that kind of emerged from the internet over the past few years, and then the amazing writer Rebecca Solnit wrote an essay about it called Men Explain Things to Me. So (laughs) mansplaining is when a man explains something to you in a condescending or pedantic manner that you already know. And the reason why Rebecca Solnit wrote this essay was because she had been at a cocktail party where a man was explaining to her in a very loud voice where she couldn't get a word in that she really needed to check out this new book. Like, it's really great, and, like, she really should, you know... Anyway, it was her book. Um, But she couldn't get a word in to explain that it was her book, so she wrote this essay. Um, So that's mansplaining. Can I tell you my favorite joke about mansplaining? Yes. Where does a mansplainer get his water? I don't know. From a well, actually. (laughs) Okay, how many people have experienced mansplaining? Yes? Okay. So we've gone through three fun, kind of difficult to say words. They're funny, they're sort of jokey, but I mean, the whole point of the book is to point out these are serious behaviors and you have to stop them. So why use silly names for these things? Yeah, um, you know, it's been interesting because some of the criticism of the book has been like, well, first of all, not every, you're not describing every man and, and these are, you know, why give them these kind of silly terms that don't really bring seriousness to them. But I actually think linguistically, 
there's a really important purpose to this type of terminology. So there's a, I'll just do like a little linguistic <laughs> talk right now. Um, portmanteau is when you combine two words to create another word. And what these types of words are called is bromanteau. You take bro-ish words and combine them with other words to create new words. And what linguists will tell you is that there is actually a very, there's a utility in this type of language because it takes, you know, a pretty complex concept, like having to explain that, like, women are interrupted twice as frequently and, like, cite the studies and prove that it exists. Like, it's kind of, it's complex. And if you're in the moment when you're being interrupted, it's hard to get all of that out. And yet, suddenly, there's this sort of fun to say, easy to understand term with which you can use to call out the behavior. And so I actually think that it's been pretty effective in the sense that people can, you know, playfully or not so playfully be like, yo, can you stop me interrupting me? And everyone knows what they mean. And so, you know, arguably, like, men have been explaining things to women since the dawn of time. And it's not always their fault. Like, they were told that they were superior. And so, of course, they needed to explain things to us. So, (laughs) but could we ever describe this behavior and, like, why it existed? No, not really. But now we have this fun word for it. And so suddenly, like, you're watching cable news and Rachel Maddow's, like, telling some politician to stop mansplaining to her. And we all get it. And he shuts up. (laughs) Hopefully. Or maybe not. Or he gets mad and explains why he's not a mansplainer. (laughs) But you also, I mean, you also have terms for behaviors that aren't just about what men do, right? Uh, One of the ones that jumped out at me was lactator. Right, the lactator. Yes. Yes, so... And, and, well, we'll get to that in a second. Yes, so the lacto-hater <laughs> could be a, anyone. This is basically the concept that we perceive women in a workplace context to be less committed to the job. And so what all of the research and data shows is that actually women are incredibly committed, women with children, and in fact oftentimes more ambitious And they really get a lot done in a small period of time because they got shit to do (laughs) when they get home. And so actually, like, hiring a mother is a really great move as an employer. And yet there are all these stereotypes we hold, and one of them is that, yeah, we don't think a mother is committed. So anytime a woman walks in late who happens to have a child, it's like, oh, she must have been picking up her kid at daycare. Like, no, maybe she was in a meeting. Um, so we have all of these stereotypes, and they play out in various ways. And, and, and oftentimes we don't really think about the role of motherhood in terms of how we navigate daily occurrences in our modern workplaces. And KUOW is actually referenced in... I have a chart. It's called... Will I Pump Today? A Working Mother's Flow Chart. <laughs> and it's basically like a maze that you'll never make it to the end of because it's impossible. And it was inspired by a colleague of yours, Isolde Raftery, who had to pump in the, what was it? The- uh, it was an electrical closet in a server room. I also pumped there. <laughs> it felt like if you sat there too long, your milk would become electrically charged. And then your child would become a mutant. It was a terrifying, terrifying place to pump. Not very comfortable. And so sometimes there are these small things that even in really progressive, wonderful workplaces, I started as an intern at KUW, it was a wonderful place to work. We don't 
sometimes think about these things. And same with the behaviors. Sometimes you have to call it out in order to notice that it's happening. And in the case of the server room slash electrical closet slash pumping room, it wasn't until Isolde reported on it and the public learned what was going on there. She also reported on pumping rooms at hospitals here in Seattle, all over the country. She made a slideshow, put it up on the website, that internally we actually did something about it. Uh, and it wasn't because anybody straight up hated the moms who worked at KUOW. It was, as you said, just a thing where nobody thought about it. And a lot of the moms had other shit to do. So we didn't deal with it until Isolde came along. But that also, that also gets to this other piece of this that I was really grateful to find in Feminist Fight Club, which is the notion that whether we mean to or not, every single one of us can be kind of a sexist asshole sometimes. Totally, and racist. <laughs> so, what is, so how do you address that in the book? What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I guess... The first step towards overcoming some of these things is acknowledging, I think, that each of us is biased in our own way. Sociologists now talk a lot about implicit bias and unconscious bias, and it's the idea that we all fall victim to stereotypes, and it may not be malicious. We may not even realize it's happening, but there are cognitive shortcuts that our brains take, and so sometimes they go there. And so it was interesting, as I was reporting this, you know, I spent a lot of time writing just about these issues, and then I would walk into a meeting about something unrelated, and there would be a man and a woman, and I would instinctively assume that the man was in charge of the woman. He was her boss. And I would catch myself. And so I think part of this is acknowledging that, like, we all play a role here. Nobody is perfect. And so some of these behaviors, if we are willing to just admit that we're all coming from a place where we are a little bit biased, we can correct for them. And sometimes those corrections don't even need to be huge things. They can be as simple as, like, noticing if you're speaking more frequently than the woman in your office or, you know, various other things. So I think that acknowledging that we're all a bit biased is the first step. I will admit, when we were chatting earlier and you talked about how those biases still kind of show up in your own life, <laughs> I had a moment where I thought, boy, I can't think of an example where I do that. And then 30 seconds later, a half dozen just flooded into my head. It really just takes a moment, and you're like, oh, yeah, okay, I do this stuff too. So here's a question that people may not be as uh, game to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Have you ever found yourself acting because of a bias that you have. Oh, you guys, yeah, it happens. It's okay. It's okay. It's good. It's good to acknowledge. Truly, okay. but like if more of us could acknowledge that, then I think we would get a lot further. Yes. Yes, definitely. Um, and one of the things, what really underscored this idea of implicit bias was you have a, just a small but really strong paragraph in the book about female bosses and how people tend to feel about female bosses. So what did, what did you learn about female bosses? Let's read it to you. Oh. It's short, but it's good. And actually, while Jessica is looking for that page, I feel like now is an appropriate moment to just stop and recognize that today we lost 
everybody's favorite female boss, Princess Leia, Carrie Fisher. She was the best female boss ever. She won the rebellion for the most part. I think a moment of silence is appropriate. Okay, so what do we know about female bosses in this galaxy? So, this comes in a section called booby traps, and these are essentially the stereotypes and the landmines that women must navigate and duck and jump over and <laughs> try to race around at every turn. So, you may think she fits a stereotype of the ice-cold female boss, but you are likely the colleague or underling who is actually more critical and demanding of her because she's female. Yes, research confirms that female employees hold their female managers to different standards than they do their male managers. And so you expect her to fill the role of boss, mommy, and best friend at once, running the show with both authority and grace, while being warm, nurturing, and supportive, and look good while she's doing it. It's not untrue that some female bosses may be harder on women because they're women. This has been proven. But it is most certainly true, statistically, that their employees are harder on them because they are women, too. And so what is depressing is that, I mentioned it early on, the majority of Americans say that they prefer male bosses. Okay. Ever had a moment with a female boss? where you thought she wasn't doing a good enough job, you were judging her harshly, it's okay. There are a couple of folks slowly making that admission. It took me a while to recognize it myself, too. Uh, well, this actually seems like an appropriate moment to talk about something else, what happens when we sort of turn those biases inward on ourselves. Let's talk about the perfectionist, shall we? Yes, the perfectionist. So, you know, like a lot of these stereotypes and biases we must navigate on the outside. There are all sorts of things that we turn inward on, and so I call this self-sabotage. And so the perfectionist, you know, this is the one, this is me, like believing that you must be perfect. You cannot fail. And women are more frequently possessing of this characteristic. Why? Well, you can't say for sure why, but one reason why may be that we know or we have somehow internalized that when women make mistakes, they are actually scrutinized more harshly, remembered longer, and we can't screw up. And so it's easy to see how over time, you know, women and girls would take in this idea that they can't screw up. So the perfectionist, she, she has internalized this behavior, and I think it plays out in a lot of different scenarios. You basically said that women are like elephants when it comes to remembering crappy feedback and criticism. It's just a thing we never forget. <laughs> yes. Cool. <laughs> what a fun superpower yeah. to you have. You know, when we get criticized, we take it personally. We think that it is us. When men get criticized, they believe that it is a result of the work or something having to do with the business context. It's not like a personal criticism of their human and, you know, so all without being like, this is women's fault, because it's not women's fault. Like, we've grown up in this structure, this patriarchal structure that has told women that they are second-class citizens for all of eternity. And so, of course, over time, I think we have internalized some of those beliefs. But by the same token, some of these things you can try to combat. Who here has been a perfectionist? 
Yeah. Okay. This dovetails really nicely with uh, the imposter. I bet y'all can guess what an imposter is. Yeah? Right. So this is the person who believes she doesn't belong or when she gets to a specific role feels like she's a fraud. And this has now become kind of a buzzword, imposter syndrome. We hear about this a lot. Social science talks about it and it's, it's made its way into media. And it's something that affects women and all minority groups disproportionately. So people of color, members of the LGBT population, anyone who, as, as one woman, one researcher described it to me, who has the pressure of accomplishing a first. And, and so they go into the scenario and, and they feel that they don't belong, whereas many men, or white men anyway, would walk in with a level of confidence that is foreign to some of us. Who's been an imposter? I totally have. When I first started interviewing people, I used to pretend I was Brooke Gladstone, the host of On the Media. I even had a post-it note that said WWBGD, what would Brooke Gladstone do? <laughs> yes, we've been there? Good. Okay, so this dovetails really nicely into another piece of advice of yours, which I really love. Just fucking cry. Where did that come from? <laughs> so I'm sure that we've all heard. I feel like every time I open a women's magazine, there is an article about like crying at work. Should you do it or should you not? <laughs> and it's like, well, first of all, sometimes you can't help it. Um, and second, there's all these absurd tactics for how you're allegedly supposed to not cry. And I don't, in fact, have the answer to whether or not you should cry <laughs> at work, but I did do a lot of research about random things like women's tear ducts are actually shallower than men's, so when we do begin crying, it spills over more quickly. <laughs> I kind of love that. So, like, I don't know. You know, I feel like it's always best to be informed, even if you don't know the answer, so, like, <laughs> inform yourself. Um, but no, I mean, I, one of the women in my fight club who is a producer has always said she wanted to do a reality show where she just went into the bathrooms of corporate offices, the ladies' bathrooms, <laughs> and just like opened stalls and was like, what's wrong? <laughs> and like, you wouldn't have to have any production, no production required, like at any moment and any time you could walk into a ladies' room in a... a an office or a workplace, and probably there's a woman hiding, crying in the bathroom. And of course, that's because we're not supposed to cry at work. And there's, you know, this is, this is so, I could talk about this for hours. Like, when <laughs> boys and girls are little, they cry the same amount. And then as we get older, boys are taught by society that they're not supposed to cry. And so suddenly they don't cry anymore. And women still do. And oftentimes it's not even sad crying. It's like, anger crying or something happened at work crying and yet in a workplace environment emotion between women and men is perceived differently so if you're a woman who cries like suddenly you're hysterical and emotional and you it must be that time of the month and you're hormonal and like you couldn't possibly run a business and if a man gets emotional he's probably not crying but maybe he's expressing anger he's simply viewed as passionate about the work so there are these real double standards when it comes to these very simple things like crying. But at, at the same time, like, I don't, you, you can't win. There's, I, I did mark a passage about crying that I could read quickly um, that just goes to show that there's all this research about it, and at the end of the day, it's like, fuck it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Let's see if I can find it. <laughs> 
I will say that once I realized, when I read the section on crying, I played a little Mad Libs game, and I thought about what you were saying, which is basically, if you have to do it, get out of a public space and do it privately, and then do it as quickly as possible, and then pretend nothing happened, unless it's a super special occasion, in which case, maybe it's forgivable, but you still need to be pretty discreet about it. And I realized if you thought about snorting cocaine, it's basically exactly the same logic. That's crazy. It's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so I sort of go through, I was having like a real rough time for a while and was crying in like every place in New York City, like Dwayne Reed's, the subway, like phone booths. <laughs> um, and, and so I started getting obsessed with like appropriate places to cry um, in public. And so there's a chart, I ranked different. Um, locations. Um, But to the workplace point, I'll just read a a section here. If anything, when you cry, you give away power, said the TV host Micah Brzezinski, recalling to the Huffington Post back in 2014 how she cried when she got fired from CBS. Or as the former CEO of the Girl Scouts put it, quote, tears belong within the family. But do they? There's a bit of ancient history of it being socially acceptable for men to cry. Religious tears, heroic tears, tears of patriotic fervor. Members of the British Parliament were said to cry so hard they could barely speak. Yet it's women's tears that are viewed as problematic, manipulative. As a Latin writer writer once observed, women have learned to shed tears in order that they might lie the better. As a tool in a woman's arsenal of feminine wiles, quote, a woman wears her tears like jewelry, an ancient proverb proclaimed, or a sign that we, can't, we simply can't handle the pressures of power. But these days we can't win. Cry too much and you're too emotional. Soft, your intellect and business acumen clouded by emotion. But if something sad happens and you don't cry, yikes, stone cold bitch. <laughs> if you can fall somewhere in between, well, Hillary Clinton accomplished that once. When she cheered up in New Hampshire in 2008, remember that, after being asked how she was holding up, she won the state. More than one pundit attributed her win to the uncharacteristic display of emotion. But it's safe to say that was a fluke, that somehow by accident, Hillary had hit the near impossible bullseye of what falls within the boundaries of socially acceptable female crying, which has actually been studied. Among those characteristics, she was crying but not sobbing. Shedding a tear, but no more than a tear or two. She was technically at work. She is a politician, after all. But her her emotion was not about work as much as it was about something personal. It was also over quickly. She wasn't in a meeting when she did it or a performance review. Phew. And she hadn't been set off by immediate work pressure or a disagreement with a colleague. Of course, of course, these things may be a bit hard to accomplish if you're actually in the moment and need to cry. And that is why there's so much absurd research on how to allegedly stop yourself from crying. Jutting out your jaw, chewing gum, drinking water, pinching yourself, or even doing push-ups. All things that I read in real magazines. <laughs> it's more appropriate to do push-ups at work than to cry. Right. But actually what that means is that we end up running to the bathroom or crouching in a stairwell, putting on sunglasses or pretending we were in the rain, 
blaming allergies, or we simply run outside and do what my friend Alfia calls blinking one out. <laughs> you just like go outside, you blink it out, you walk back in, you know, just real quick. <laughs> um, anyway, the point is, and then I go on to say, or here's a wild idea, we could just fucking cry. Okay, how many people here have had to go cry in a bathroom, go cry? I had somebody literally put both hands up in the air when I asked that question. (laughs) All right, I've been there. I cried at work once because I was watching a video from Coachella when Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre brought up a hologram of Tupac Shakur after he died, and I burst into tears in front of all my colleagues. (laughs) It was a super proud moment. (laughs) What did they do? Uh, One of them leaned over and whispered, is everything okay? <laughs> and nobody else said a word. It's also, I mean, I was once in one of my editor's offices and he was telling, I was simultaneously like asking for a promotion or to be moved department, something that I wanted from him. And he was telling me that he was actually leaving the company and he was one of my favorite editors and I was very upset by this, but he wasn't leaving for a little bit. And I started to just like have the quiver and like the hot tear was like in the corner and I was like trying to keep it in. And he was like so horrified by this hat, like he could see it happening, he knew it was coming, and so he just wanted to get me out of his office as fast as possible. And so he basically was like, Yes, whatever you want. I know it's like defusing a bomb. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. Not saying employ that as a strategy, but in that case. <laughs> okay, well, we get to talk about another fun thing here, which is speaking how women sound. I'm just, before we even get into this, how many women in this room have been criticized for the way they speak? Yeah? I could raise both hands here. I have a whole bunch of letters from listeners. What do they say? I've been called uh, an airhead. I've been called a valley girl. I've been called a moron. My favorite was when somebody called me a city billy. I'm not exactly sure what that means. I'm positive it's not a compliment, however. So, yeah. What did you learn about how women speak in your research? So I learned a lot and came to (laughs) no conclusions. Um, I went to a speech coach uh, because there's this guy who has trained, he trained Molly Ringwald, he trained Sheryl Sandberg, he trained all these people in how to command the room, and that's the name of his company. And I was like, all right, I want to see what he thinks of the way I talk. And so I went and... We did this exercise where every time I used a filler word or I ended one of my statements in a question mark when it wasn't really a question, or I used vocal fry, which is when you sort of were like, hey, that noise, <laughs> he would make me drink this like watery Pepsi, which wasn't that bad, but you know, it was like. So basically, he punished you every time you. Yes, because the idea was out. for me to cut out all of these words so that I could be more authoritative when I was speaking. And. On the one hand, I, I could, you know, I get it. Like, if I'm apologizing every time I say a statement, then I'm not going to sound very confident in whatever it is I'm pitching. And yet, at the same time, the way that we judge all of these female speech patterns, and this is such a hot topic right now, like, there's constantly media articles about, like, should women stop apologizing? And, like, vocal fry, like, the Kardashians do it, and now all the rest of us do. And, yeah, like, valley girls speak, like, why do women talk like valley girls? And yet, 
what linguists will tell you, and I spend a lot of time talking to linguists because I write this column on language, is that it's actually women who lead speech trends. So we're doing things like decades before men are. And in fact, young women are actually at the forefront of this. So things like vocal fry, things like upspeak, they may not always be effective in a workplace context, but if it were reversed, like if it had been women running things forever, then would we be asking men why they are not apologizing before they speak? <laughs> and so I think it's sort of a catch-22 in a sense. You know, of course we can criticize the way women talk, but at the end of the day, like, you just have to talk like yourself, and, and it is only women who we spend so much time dissecting the way that their speech patterns are. So you went to this analyst. Did you change the way you spoke at all? <laughs> maybe a little bit in that moment. Um, certainly, like, I know my audience. And so if I'm going in, if I'm doing a corporate talk, if this were a corporate talk, I would probably be speaking in a different tone. And yet at the same time, I have found that people pretty much like it when I speak like myself. And, like, there's only so much you can do. And so at the end of the day, I think I have to talk the way that I want to talk. And, like, if you don't like it, that's not my problem. Yay! <laughs> but I do sometimes cut out likes and sorries. You know, there's a balance. I have to ask about the sorries, though. So... We are just coming off of the holidays. This seems like the best time ever to ask the question, has anybody in this room apologized recently for something they didn't need to apologize for? Maybe? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. How often does that happen? Very often. You actually talked in your book about apologizing to a barista when you corrected that barista on an order that they messed up. Yeah, like every day. <laughs> like every day when this barista screws up my order, and I'm like, oh, sorry, but I, I, I wanted the other cappuccino or whatever. <laughs> really, I wanted almond milk, but I felt embarrassed saying that here because I know it's poor use of resources. <laughs> We're in Seattle. Anyway, yes, I apologize. But I was reading a really interesting thing the other day about a woman who did an experiment where she tried replacing sorries with thank yous. And so this wouldn't work in the barista scenario, but, you know, sorry I'm late. Thank you for waiting for me. So that, you know, it's about, it's actually giving the other person praise and you don't have to feel regretful. I'm going uh, to shift gears a little bit. Um, I know that you get asked for advice a lot when you do talks like this. Um, and one of the sections of the book that I found really helpful was the section called What Would Josh Do? Or How to Attain the, the Confidence of a Mediocre White Man, I believe is a subtitle. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's start by talking about Josh. Who is your Josh? So my Josh was a colleague that I shared a wall with um, at Newsweek. This was far back enough that we actually had offices and weren't, like, working underneath our desks. Um, and so we each we had side-by-side -side offices, and we shared a wall. And, you know, we would knock on the wall and talk to each other all day long, and he was a great friend. And yet I would always notice that the way that he carried himself in pretty much every scenario, was the exact opposite of the way that I would. And so he would walk into our afternoon meetings where I would have spent hours laboring over my three pitches or the three bullet points that I needed to say out loud so that I could be so, so prepared. And he would have done no research, and he would 
completely bullshit his way through the meeting, but with so much confidence that you believed what he was saying. And, you know, when I was going in to ask for my first raise, after I found out that one of my male colleagues with the same title was making more than $10,000 above what I was, and we had the same job, he coached me in how to do it. And he just had this innate confidence that I didn't. And so I, it eventually became a joke around the office where anytime we were in a tough scenario or how we didn't, when we didn't know how to respond to something or something tricky, we would say, well, WWJD, what would Josh do? <laughs> and that became the joke. And we would ask ourselves that, of course, acknowledging that the goal was not to become a complete bullshitter and go to the exact opposite side of the spectrum. But women have this tendency to un- self-undermine and to assume that they don't know as much. And women prepare more before they go into meetings. Like, this is all statistically proven. And it's because we don't have that innate confidence often. So how can you get to a middle point where you're, like, taking a little bit of Josh and then also doing you and, like, not being a complete bullshitter but walking in with confidence? That is an excellent question. How have you done it? (laughs) Um, I truly ask myself, what would Josh do all the time? (laughs) Like, maybe in the green room before we walked out here. Um, No, I really do think, I think, like, what would he do in this scenario? Or what would a man do in this scenario? And, okay, am I, you know, am I not setting the standard high enough for myself? And, you know, simple tricks like asking for forgiveness, not permission, I have a tendency to ask for permission for anything, any small thing I want in a work context. I am always afraid that I will get in trouble, so I ask permission. And I would notice over and over again that Josh would just do the thing, and it would usually have a good outcome, and so there would be no issue. If it had a bad outcome, then he would ask for forgiveness. And so that is a line that I repeat in my head frequently, and you know, sometimes I feel cheesy doing it, but <laughs> I found it to be effective. Is there anybody here who can think of someone who they work with, an acquaintance who they might be able to sort of ape a little bit of the confidence from? This is something that I have done without realizing for years. There's a coworker of mine who taught me ask forgiveness, not permission. And holy crap, has it made a difference. I've had to apologize for things a couple times. But it's been fine for the most part. It's been great for the most part. It's been really good. Um... I wanted to talk a little bit more about the actual for real feminist fight club, the one that still meets. (sighs) Forgive me for going here, you guys, but as long as we're talking about white guys, let's talk about the white guy who's about to take the office of the president. What has the feminist fight club meetings, what have those been like since Donald Trump won the presidential election? They've been pretty dark. Yeah, I mean, I've made no secret about my support in this most recent election. And that was interesting as a journalist because typically I don't write about that and I don't talk about it publicly. Um, But to me it felt like as a person who covers gender, gender, I could not talk about this election without giving the context. And to be clear, just for people who don't know, you supported Lyndon LaRouche in this election, yes? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Um, and, 
And I think that was the way that most of the women in my group felt. And, and I'm the only journalist in the group. It's, uh, we're in creative fields, but that ranges from marketing and advertising to production, film, to comedians. And so we met shortly after, and I think a lot of us were feeling very devastated. And we didn't quite know what we were going to do, but we typically have a format, which is that we literally, it's sort of old school 1970s consciousness raising group style, where we have a little note card, and it says, like, name, what's your goal for the next five years? Name one thing you're going to do to help another woman. Um, And this time, we had name, we always do names for whatever reason, Um, (laughs) feeling, question, and action. And we went around the room, and not all of us knew what our action was going to be, but we wanted to figure out ways that we could do something. And to try to turn it from talking about these issues into actually acting. And so, you know, these ranged from um, one woman wants to make a documentary about Trump supporters to um, another woman who lives in Washington, D.C., opening up her home for anyone who wants to stay there during the Women's March on Washington. Um, to, for me, I was getting a lot of emails from, from strangers or from people that had read the book asking what they could do, and I wasn't sure. And so I compiled a list of different organizations that I thought were beneficial that people could donate to or ways that they could get involved. And, and we tried to do something constructive. Um, you know, of course we're artists and so there's a lot of great art I think that's going to happen as a result of this but did we know I mean do we know the answers no um but it but truly to have a group to talk to I think felt validating and you know allowed us to to get to a place where we felt like we were doing something and I think a lot of us also acknowledged that we had been almost smug in our assured support of Hillary and belief that she was going to win. And so how did we miss what so many other people, and especially those of us in the media, what so many other people may have known? And and to hear, you know, a lot of people of color saying, yeah, like, what America are you living in? This is the America I live in. Like, how can you possibly be surprised? And so for some of us, the action was simply just, like, listening more um, and trying to have a better sense. Well, that brings me to one of my last questions for you. This whole book is about identifying and calling out pretty subtle sexism. We are heading into administration that is not, how do I say this diplomatically, is not known for its subtlety. Can I? That's fair, right? Donald Trump's sexism does not appear to be subtle in any way, shape, or form. So what do these strategies look like in that world? Yeah, you know, of course, that's like the elephant in the room. I'm like, I just wrote a whole book on subtle sexism, and now there's a pussy grabber in the office. And, um, you know, I think that whomever you may have supported, to me it was horrifying to see that on screen. And so I think it goes to show that there is a lot of overt sexism as well as as subtleties. You know, the role of some of the bias in this election, I think there were so many things that played into this and Hillary Clinton's loss. But to me, what kept popping out was, 
you know, the way that we scrutinized her in the way that we wouldn't have scrutinized a man. Everything from the tone of her voice to whether or not she was qualified. Well, yes, women have to be twice as qualified as a man to be viewed on the same level. Um, to the fact that so many people just don't like her. She rubs them the wrong way. And, okay, like, that's a valid concern, but what the research shows is that when women seek power, we like them less, and when men seek power, we like them more. And so, to me, there were all sorts of underlying dynamics playing into this. And so, I guess what is encouraging to me is seeing that people who did not support Donald Trump are feeling galvanized. And for the first time in my lifetime, I think, my friends are actually getting off of their computers and their phones, and they are marching, and they are organizing, and, you know, they're going to the March on Washington on January 21st, and, and I think that there is action coming out of this. Um, so I think that's a good thing, but I guess I need to write an update. <laughs> of the book. I think that, you know, overt sexism doesn't mean, these things, subtle sexism is still going to exist, whether there or not there is overt sexism. Some of the more overt things need to be fought with more aggressive tactics, perhaps. So I guess I have another future-looking kind of speculative question for you then. What do these tactics look like outside of the workplace? I think a lot of this crosses over. You know, like the, this idea that women's voices are not heard and not listened to, or when we speak, we don't get believed. You know, I think these things cross into things like sexual assault and, you know, all sorts of scenarios. So I think, I hope that a lot of the tools that I try to provide here can be used in all sorts of scenarios. And even if it's just, you know, us acknowledging and recognizing when we exhibit some of these behaviors, like, that matters in all contexts. Jessica, thank you so much. This has been really enjoyable. Thank you. So now I get to stop asking questions, and you all get to ask questions. We've got a couple of, we have, I guess we, oh, we've got two microphones. If you want to head up and get in line, um, you can start asking questions. I have been asked to remind everyone that if you're going to ask a question, it has to be a question. It can't be a statement where you just stop talking and expect a response. And also, especially if there are other folks in line behind you, um, if you can keep your question brief, that would be really helpful. So come on up if you have questions. We can start over here. And would you do me a favor and just uh, introduce yourself before you just say your name before you ask the question? Sure. Um, I'm Celeste Banks. Uh, I wanted to thank you for the book. I've talked to a couple of my friends about it, and I think there's a lot of articles and things to read about how difficult it is to be a woman in the workplace and very few places that you can read about what you should do. So it was such a pleasure. Um, and then my question is, I loved your 
um, how you to yourself are like, ask for permission, not for, or ask for forgiveness, not for permission. <laughs> and I was wondering if you have any other like funny mantras that you say to yourself. Sometimes I find myself quoting Beyonce to myself and um, I sometimes I'm looking for other encouragement. Beyonce's great, but. <laughs> I mean, I do say to myself, like carry yourself with the confidence of a mediocre white man. That's like a mouthful. <laughs> So maybe WWMD, what would a man do, might be shorter. Um, what else do you say? Oh, boy. I don't know if what would Brooke Gladstone do if that applies outside of my own uh, I mean, what would Gloria Steinem do, I sometimes say to what myself? What would Gloria Steinem do works? Um, I do some, this is like something that a therapist friend of mine told me once that works well, which is what's, what's your desired outcome here? And just keep your eyes on that. The rest of it is nonsense. And, and also, what's the worst that can happen? I oftentimes, I mean, for a long time, I held myself back from doing things because I didn't want to fail. But failure is such a huge part of life, and you learn from it. And so what is the worst that can happen? Well, you'll fail, or maybe you won't get the raise. But it's probably worth asking. Another one to always keep in mind, you know what you're talking about. You can say that to yourself all the GD time, and it's also, true. Also, you can literally say this stuff in the mirror. Like, Olympic athletes do it. Like, you self-affirmation, telling yourself you're awesome, has been proven to work even if you feel really cheesy doing it. I also power pose. Yeah. Um, that's when you stand in a power, a power position like Wonder Woman kind of, and if you do it for 90 seconds or more, your testosterone levels go up your stress hormones go down, and you actually become more confident, Mm -hmm. allegedly. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Celeste. Hello, my name's Christine, and you talked earlier about kind of having allies, and especially women who are there to support you and kind of step up for you and, and say, you know, don't mansplain, let her, you know, or don't interrupt, that sort of thing. Um, I work for a place that's a utility. It's a male-dominated culture, a lot of finance and engineers. And, I mean, out of a 30-person management team, there are three women on that. So what advice do you have for someone who's in just such a strong male-dominated culture where there, there aren't really allies to pull into the conversation and support you? How do you what, – what do you recommend? Yeah, I mean, I think that finding male allies is so, so important and should not be understated. Like – this is not a battle that women can win by just talking to each other. And most of us have really good men in our lives who want to support equality. And at least for my generation, what all of the research shows is that men really do want equal office environments, workplaces, relationships. Sometimes it's just harder to figure out how to get there. And so I think having these conversations with men as much as we have them with women. You know, when my fight club started, it was all women. But I think if we were to do it today, we would invite anyone who supported gender equality. And I think that more often than not, men actually want to have this conversation. It can be tricky to open it up, so maybe try having it. And then, of course, like, as much as you can influence increasing the ranks of women, what all of the data shows is that as there become more women or a critical mass of women in a room or in any context, that's about 25%, women's voices are more likely to be heard. And people will stop looking at you as a 
token, but just simply view you as a human. So I think encouraging male allies and, and of course, trying to support equal workplaces. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, I'm Catherine, and actually I too work for utility, and I found out the other day that my boss, uh, who's a woman, was also reading Feminist Fight Club, so it was a very exciting moment. You guys should form a Feminist really, Fight really Club. Really needed in that area. Um, my question is about, so living in Seattle and in a progressive area where, like you mentioned, a lot of men are interested in furthering the cause, but also those men are perpetrate these issues of mansplaining and man-interrupting all the time. And I find a lot of your advice kind of skirts around directly confronting those men in that moment um, and about that issue and telling them that they're part of the problem, which I think is really hard to hear when you're part of a privileged group. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering, how, what do you do when you want to help a guy understand that he might be part of the problem in this scenario? Yeah, I mean, I think these are delicate conversations to have at times, depending on who you're dealing with. And I certainly think that if you think it will be beneficial to have that conversation in the moment, then do it. You know, if you're being man-interrupted and you, the only option is to call the person out for it in front of a group, he's probably not going to do it again. Um, but these are tricky conversations. And I've always found that in some scenarios, it helps to have an army or people to back you up so that you're not targeting one individual and ambushing them, but you're trying to have a constructive conversation and you know that you have people who will back you up on it. So I don't know. I think if it's a cultural problem in the office environment, maybe it's actually more effective to have the direct conversation with those who are setting the tone rather than the underlings who are perhaps exhibiting some of these behaviors. But I think, again, having male allies, like if there's a good guy in the group who can talk to the other men, I mean, not that we shouldn't be able to have these conversations with other men, but sometimes that can be effective as well. But I do think that confronting the issues directly is, is hugely important. I also think it's worth pointing out uh, another piece of advice that you... I'm going to quote you back to you right now. Um, Jessica talks about uh, keeping... a keeping a record of when these conversations occur in the workplace, who's there, all of that stuff. Sometimes it's an email, sometimes it's just a record for yourself. But then you have a picture of how many times you've had to bring this up and whether you need to get other people involved as well, which allows you to feel like it's not just a thing that you have to solve yourself. I also, I mean, the reason why this book is so rooted in data, like there are 400 footnotes at the end, and there is not, this is all written in my voice, but there's not a single thing in here that's not backed up with research, because I didn't want to just give people my advice, because how do I know it's right, it's just my experience, and so I've relied very heavily on social science research, and what I've tried to do throughout, obviously there's no one solution for every context, but is give the direct approach, give the kind of playful, humorous approach, and then give the, the indirect approach, or perhaps the approach that relies on an ally, so that hopefully one of those scenarios may work for you, but it's clearly so individual based on who you're dealing with. Thank you. Hi. Hi, my name is Tessa, and I'm wondering... Um, what makes you want to keep going when people shut you down? 
um, people like you who come to the talks and <laughs> um, you know truly like seeing the younger generation who's hopefully not going to have to deal with a lot of these issues and is going to work to change them. Thanks. I just got to cry in public a little. <laughs> Hi, my name is Donna, and I've been in this fight for a long, long time. <laughs> I could give you many examples. And one of the things that I just really think is so important is how we use our language. And not to be picking, but I want to give this as an example. Is your name Jean? Yes. Um, when the first time that you asked us to show hands, you asked, how many of you guys? I look around You're right. here. And I just, you know, I just want everybody to be aware of how we use our language and how it also influences how people think of, of women, of being a feminist. And it's so important that we recognize that we can make change just through our own voices. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks. I've been looking for a replacement for guys. I know. I love you guys. It's such a there, hard, it's a well, hard habit not, to break. I mean, gals sounds demeaning in a way. Does anyone have a good... Y'all. All y'all. Y'all or all y'all. That's what we're hearing? Okay. There's also Noted. A, a dictionary in the book. It's called How Not to Be a Dictionary. And... It goes through a lot of this terminology, a lot of this gender terminology, and you know, oftentimes, truly, we do not realize the way that gender plays into the tiniest bits of language. Hi, Jessica. Can, is this on? Love it. I'm going to buy a few copies of your book, so I hope your autograph hand is warmed up. Uh, my name is Mandy, and I started my MBA at the University of Virginia in 2007, where they say y'all a lot. And uh, I remember speaking to a classmate who was a guy uh, a few weeks into the term, and he told me the reason I was there because of, was because of a quota, because I met the 30% goal of women in my class that the school was shooting for, which is a tragedy. And at the time, I did not have the tools or the vocabulary to tell him to fuck off in a, <laughs> maybe a more diplomatic way. So I'm curious what you think, and ironically now the University of Virginia has a president who's a woman, so hopefully some things have changed. But I'm curious what you think about where education is going in this regard and how we're equipping young ladies and hopefully young men in the classroom today in undergraduate and in professional degrees like I was to help you know, combat this. Yeah, I mean, it was not until a number of years after university that I even started calling myself a feminist. And I remember doing a piece about negotiation seminars that were happening on college campuses a few years back, and I went and attended a number of them. And I was amazed because I had never heard of these tactics before, and I so wished that I had learned them when I was in school. So what we know is that women are enrolling and graduating from college in higher numbers and graduate school, receiving more master's degrees. And yet, somehow, there is this switch. We get out of school, and then we become the minority. 
And so I think that without being an education expert, I think that probably there could be a better job being done of preparing women and people of color, for that matter, for what they are going to face in the working world because it's not being reflected in what are traditionally merit-based environments in school. And unfortunately, the modern workplace is not often merit-based, and you are going to butt up against a lot of this stuff. So, you know, we don't really teach women's studies in school unless you choose to be a major in it these days. And so for me, I had to self-teach. I think that talking about these issues, I think that things like negotiation trainings in business schools, certainly, like some of the case studies that could be taught, just highlighting the fact that it's not perfect and it's not equal out there. And so we do need to be equipped with strategies. What do you think? I don't know if I have anything to add to that, but I think it's important to own the fact that you can have conversations and you can negotiate if you need to. And those aren't skills that are talked about or practiced in an educational context, certainly not for young women. I think that we are talking more about it, though. Like, certainly we could be doing a better job, but this is a conversation that I don't think... I think five years ago, first of all, I wouldn't have been able to call this book Feminist Fight Club, and it wouldn't have been sold to a mainstream publisher with that title. And second, I don't know that outside of Seattle anyway, we would have been able to attract this large an audience for a talk specifically about these issues. And so I think that it's good that this has permeated the lexicon and the culture and, and media in this way, but I do think there's always work to be done. So, so my question would be, what will be the active role of men in, in these issues? Like in a workplace, I, if I see a woman, in somehow uh, in, in these situations, I can't go and tell her, oh, let me explain you what sexism is. <laughs> True. <laughs> I hear from a lot of women who say they don't know how to talk to the men in their offices about these issues. And I hear the same thing from men who want to be allies but don't quite know how to engage or open the conversation. So I think that we all need to do a better job of talking about it. And I wish that there was some, like, filter that you could put on your prof human profile that was like, I'm a feminist, so that people in your office would know that you're an ally. I mean, sort of like the safety pin idea. Um, but to show that you are an ally. I think that, you know, taking people aside and talk, like asking them questions, have they ever experienced this? You can literally, like, put a copy of the book on your desk, <laughs> Like, that is the equivalent of being like, I'm, I'm on your team. Like, I am in the fight club. Come talk to me about it. Stop by. Um, and then I think there are also really specific, concrete things that men can do every day, whether it's noticing um, how much they're speaking in meetings to um, if they see an idea incorrectly attributed to somebody else, making sure that they just call out that actually that was a great idea when, when just first pitched it. Um, and things like, well, you can, there's a PSA in the book. It's a penile service announcement. And 
it's like 16 things that men can do every day to be good allies. So some of that is constructive, but I think really not being afraid to engage on these issues and asking questions and listening. Also acting. I have a couple of male colleagues who have made a point of amplifying ideas of women in meetings, repeating that ideas belong to certain women, um, showing what it means to ask forgiveness rather than permission. In the same way that women notice acts of sexism, they notice acts of allyship too. We'll notice that. And that's a really good way to make it known that you will put your money where your mouth is too. Thank you. Hi. So I had an interesting experience at one of the last startups that I did. And one of my clients was a private equity firm. And I was on a call with the head of the firm. And he was bragging about the fact that um, he discovered that his, you know, his staffers, now all male predominantly, um, had to help their wives with, once they had babies, help them with night care for the kids. And they were coming in and falling asleep in these meetings. And so he immediately rushed to their aid and was bragging about the fact that he had instituted this new policy whereby anyone who had a newborn could actually um, uh, hire a night nurse and the firm would fund it. Um, and I bring this up only because, you know, as a woman um, executive, nobody had ever suggested such a thing. Even though I was the one that woke, um, you know, through three kids, right? Through three pregnancies and three nursing sessions. Um, and so I brought this up. And, it, you know, there's a similar story that Sheryl Sandbergs tells in her story, which is it wasn't until she was in executive leadership and she was pregnant that it occurred to her that maybe they should have pregnancy parking, right? Because she was hauling herself in from way out in the, in the parking lot. But how many women had martyred themselves before then and didn't ask, right? So I feel like there's this um, issue of man empathy and female martyrism, right? So I was curious whether you had explored that at all in your research and what your thoughts were. I think that part of this goes to show how important male allyship, to spin it in a positive way. Once men start taking leave, then suddenly this is no longer a women's issue. It's just a human issue. And people, companies that are often male-run, start taking it seriously. Is that right? No. Of course, it should be taken seriously when we do it. But it's interesting to hear that once the guys started doing it, suddenly policy changes. So I think that without saying that we should rely on men to get things done for us. Sometimes having a guy who understands these issues and putting that idea forth can be really effective, and that's the sad reality of living in a patriarchal society still. Um, I forgot what the other thing I was going to say was. You looked like you were going to say something. What was the second part of your question? So it was just the fact that we as women often don't speak up for ourselves. Like, we're willing to martyr right. ourselves. So I'm willing to do all the night nursing and walk into my executive job I, yes. and fill all of my and, responsibilities. Okay, so and then yeah. also I think we have to start demanding more. Um, like, we just have to. And only will it become normalized when women continue to ask. Like, the, I think this goes for asking for raises, too. For so long, women didn't ask for raises. They're a fourth as likely to negotiate a raise as a man is. And when they do negotiate, they're viewed as pushy. 
So how do you combat that? You just keep asking and eventually it becomes normal and they have to respond. So I think the same goes for this. We need to ask for more, but also men in the position to do it, great. Like if it's if they're gonna get the, the nap room that I want, fine. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jean, and this is a little bit of a follow-up question, I think, from the gentleman before. I'm wondering, since I love the humor in your book, and I feel very strongly that humor can really be an influence in changing people's minds versus shaming or other methods that they're never, never going to forget, I'm wondering if you or one of your allies would consider writing, and maybe you already have this, an interactive blog where it's sort of tongue-in-cheek, but it's real, like, five things to do in the workplace when you see a woman crying, and... You know, what to do when you find yourself manerupting and you can't, you know, you know, something with a little bit of humor, but um, changing the conversation a little bit to um, making a lot of these behaviors sound acceptable. I, I don't know if that you thought that would be work help or that you know someone who might be interested in that. Yeah, I mean, I think that I tried so hard to make this information bite-sized and digest digestible because I think it often is really tedious to read these types of books. And so I think I tried to almost accomplish a blog format within the book um, and speak in the language that my generation reads and consumes in. So I think that a blog is a great idea because it can be very actionable and each of these individual tactics can be passed around on their own rather than having to flip through something. And, I, and I've thought, in fact, about you know, maybe there's a version of this book targeted specifically at men that's more like how to be an ally and things that you can do on a daily basis. And the reality is that actually all of that information is in this, but it may require repackaging so that they want to read it, except for the lovely men who are in this room. Thank you for being here. Also, it does say on the cover that it's 21% more expensive for men. It's not, just FYI. <laughs> Hi, um, my name's Katie, and I'm a proud clinical social worker. Um, I'm in a very female-dominated field. I work at an agency that's female-dominated, except for the majority of the people in supervisory positions are men. Um, but on a day-to-day -day basis, in my sub-teams and you know, w within my day-to-day -day work, it is so female-dominated, and we're always being able to share our different ideas with each other. And so I'm trying, and, but that's not to say that all the things that you discuss in your book definitely come up within our workplace somehow, impossibly. We're still getting interrupted, or we're still having our ideas taken from, from us um, and appropriated. Um, I'm wondering if in your research you have come across or in, within your feminist fight club any suggestions for people in female-dominated fields that, you know, we, we are funded by government grants very often, and so there is a cap at how much we can ask for raises, and sometimes it really is not about merit, it's more about the circumstances, um, or about how to, how to somehow further our work um, and acknowledge the 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 sexism and the patriarchy that is still present in our day-to-day -day work, even though on, on a day-to-day -day basis we are feeling very, uh, we, we have each other to support each other. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that, I mean, the fact that the leadership is male and you're, like, that, that needs to change. So advocating for that or maybe figuring out a way to, as a group, talk openly 
about that um, so that one person doesn't feel like they're speaking up and risking their job. Um, I think that a lot of these behaviors, maybe not so much the interrupting or the appropriating, but so much of this, things like perceiving male bosses with more authority or disliking aggressive women, these are things that women exhibit too. And so women can be sexist as well. And so I think it's a lot of this stuff comes up in female-dominated workplaces as well. I think it's also, I so frequently am asked about female competition in a workplace environment, and it sounds like that may not be an issue for you, which is wonderful, but so often throughout my career, I have either found myself feeling competitive with other women or feeling like another woman is competitive with me and having to catch myself and be like, that's the patriarchy talking. <laughs> don't, like, you don't have to feel competitive. There's not a limited number of slots for you here. Um, and once things are more equal, then we won't have to feel one competitive with one another. So I think like a lot of these issues can still be talked about in female-dominated environments as well. And, and top leadership sets the tone. Thanks. I, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Hi. Um, I just wanted to first hit a couple of points before I'm part of this women's leadership group on, I'm an undergraduate, and on campus, and we have, we call them manbassadors, and we have laptop stickers, because I think they're so fun. But anyway, um, my question is, when I was reading your book, um, the section on speaking, I often found myself thinking, like, well, yeah, it shouldn't be that if I speak in this manner, it's like disadvantageous, but if I don't, like I'm still not gonna move up and whatever. And how do you walk that line between not giving into that, but also still like moving up in your career? Right, so this is, you are touching on one of the big tensions that I had internally throughout the writing of the book, which was a lot of the research, in fact, advises you to play into stereotypes in, over, in order to overcome them. So things like, all right, you're going to be perceived as pushy when you ask for a raise. Okay, smile. And then people like you. Now, anyone who <laughs> has been a woman who's been told to smile or asked why they're not smiling probably finds that irksome, as do I. And so it's like, all right, do you do it to go in and get the raise and get the money and hope that like, when you're in power, you're going to lift other women up and not require them to smile in order to promote them? Or do you refuse to play into it? And for me, this is, this is an ongoing tension that I have throughout my career because I don't want to play into this shit. But for me in the speech section in particular, I have tried to find a middle balance, which is if I know I'm going to be presenting to a room full of men and they speak a certain way and I'm trying to get a point across, Sure, I'll adjust my language to do that because ultimately it's going to benefit me. But am I going to change my entire personality? No. And so I do think that so much of this is individual. And for me, I wanted to put forth the research so that on some level you could make your own decision. Like you have to be comfortable with the way you're speaking at the end of the day. And if you're feeling like you're acting the entire time, it's probably not going to be effective anyway. So I think there's a balance. Like, I try to cut my saris, but I also talk like myself. And I love the ambassadors. <laughs> uh, Jessica, I have a question, but first, uh, if you do, and I hope you do, 
write the one for men, you're going to have to dumb it down a little bit. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so I'm sure your life is one continual book tour, but what's your next project? I don't know. <laughs> um, I'm sort of trying to figure that out. Like, it's a weird moment right now because of everything that's happening politically and for someone who writes about gender and... I noticed that as soon as the election happened, you know, my regular column that I write on linguistics um, suddenly felt insignificant. Like, I love learning about um, youth language trends and the fact that mom is now a term of endearment, FYI, um, at, for things that are cool, not for moms necessarily, though moms are also cool. Um, you know, stuff like that. Like, great, but is that affecting change. And and I'm not an activist, I'm a journalist, but I went into journalism because I wanted to be able to write about issues that I cared about that could potentially affect change. So, I don't know, I'm kind of trying to figure that out, um, but certainly this topic is not going to go away anytime soon. And there are a lot of corporations desperate for people to come in and tell them how to increase their ranks. So if nothing else, I can do some corporate speaking. <laughs> um, and, like, startup idea, if anyone wants to start a consulting firm for, like, telling corporations what to do, it is in dire need. <laughs> do it. So I don't know. Well, TBD, <laughs> as the, the youth say. I'm Danielle. I was a little uncomfortable to ask this question, but I work in a team where I'm the only woman, and all of my coworkers are at least 20 years older than me. And I've been passed over for opportunities to like travel to Anchorage with one of my coworkers because of how it might look for a young single female to travel with a married man, even though we're going for work and we're going for the same event and we're going for the same purpose. So they'll either travel alone or they'll take one of the other men. And I'm not sure how to combat that within a team where I'm the only woman. Yeah, what you describe is common. And we talk, there's so much talk these days about mentorship. And everyone needs to find a mentor. But part of the reason why women are less likely to have mentors is because it is still men in most of the leadership positions. And men feel uncomfortable being alone in rooms with women or feel like it won't be perceived the right way. So I think that's something that you do address directly with your superior. If you feel you're being held back because of the perception, then there needs to be a policy put in place so that that is not the perception. You know, whether it's just sometimes in, in a mentorship context, what companies will do is they will create mandatory mentorship policies. So they will make it known that so-and-so is assigned to so-and-so. And... -so, and it is a company thing. It is company mandated. It's not just like this dude taking out this young woman to talk about her career over drinks frequently. And so even if it was made very clear publicly uh, from a public perception standpoint, if that's the concern that this is a professional work trip, um, I, I think I, my take would be try to discuss it because otherwise it's going to keep happening and, and they'll lose you eventually. Do you have anything else to add? Oh, I th no, I think that that's really great advice, but al it's also, I mean, if you work with these guys every single day, is there not a clear record of nothing happening? 
that's probably something that you could point out to a superior. It's abundantly clear you and men older than you can work together, and it shouldn't right. be a problem, even in Anchorage. It's just, I mean, this stuff comes up all the time. Like, this is, these are the things that people have to deal with. I would also say, like, for me, when I've been in these types of scenarios, and it has happened throughout my career all the time, I at least have this group of women to go to to be like, what do you think I should do? Like, have you ever been in this scenario? So at the end of the day, when I don't know how to answer a lot of questions, my typical response is usually form a fight club or form a group. Call it whatever you want, but having somebody... Having a group of people you can bounce these things off of can be extremely beneficial because it can be hard to know how to navigate this. Y'all, thank you very much for coming. This has been a lot of fun. I think Jessica's going to start signing books now. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Jessica Bennett is the author of Feminist Fight Club, an office survival manual for a sexist workplace. She spoke with KUOW's Jeannie Yandel at Town Hall Seattle on December 27th. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon.